You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. A major ransomware gang is taken down in an international sweep. CISA and the Water ISAC respond to the Aliquippa cyber attack. Attacks against infrastructure operators hit business systems. ClickSense installations are hit with Cactus ransomware. Researchers discover a Google Workspace vulnerability. A hacktivist auxiliary compromises a Russian media site. In an exclusive interview, Eric Goldstein, executive assistant director at CISA, describes their new Secure by Design Alerts program launching today. Tim Starks from The Washington Post shares insights on the latest legislation dealing with Section 702 surveillance. And security teams need not polish up that resume after a breach. It's November 29th, 2023. I'm Dave Bittner, and this is your CyberWire Intel Briefing. In a major international cybersecurity crackdown, law enforcement from seven countries with the support of Eurojust and Europol targeted a sophisticated criminal network responsible for ransomware attacks on over 1,800 victims across 71 countries, as reported by Bleeping Computer. The operation culminated in the arrest of the network's ringleader, the detention of four suspects in Ukraine, searches at 30 locations, and the seizure of over 100 digital equipment tools. The criminals, playing varied roles within the network, executed their attacks through multiple methods. These included brute force attacks, SQL injection techniques, use of stolen credentials, and phishing emails with malicious attachments to infiltrate IT networks. Once inside, they employed malware such as TrickBot and post-exploitation frameworks like Cobalt Strike or PowerShell Empire to stay undetected and further penetrate the systems. Often undetected for months, the attackers eventually deployed various types of ransomware, including Locker, Goga, Megacortex, Hive, or Dharma, and then demanded ransoms in Bitcoin for decryption keys. This collaborative operation involving law enforcement agencies from France, Germany, the Netherlands, Norway, Switzerland, Ukraine, and the United States signifies a significant stride in the global fight against cybercrime, 
the effectiveness of this international cooperation highlights the growing emphasis on tackling cyber threats that cross national boundaries. The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency has identified Unitronics programmable logic controllers as the compromised systems in the recent attack on the Municipal Water Authority of Aliquippa, Pennsylvania. CISA has issued urgent recommendations for water utilities using these PLCs. These include changing default passwords, implementing multi-factor authentication for all remote access, disconnecting PLCs from the open Internet and using a firewall or VPN for necessary remote access, regularly backing up logic and configurations, changing the default TCP port to avoid targeted cyber attacks, and updating PLC and HMI to the latest versions. The Water Information Sharing and Analysis Center, the Water ISAC, also highlighted the need for better operational security, especially when releasing information to the media, as evidenced by an image released by the Water Authority that inadvertently revealed sensitive system details. This incident emphasizes the critical need for enhanced cybersecurity measures in essential public utilities. Ransomware attacks continue to target infrastructure operators, with recent incidents focusing on utility business systems rather than control systems. The North Texas Municipal Water District experienced a cyber attack impacting its business network, as reported by The Record. Alex Johnson, NTMWD's Director of Communications, confirmed that while most of their business network has been restored, their core water, wastewater, and solid waste services remain unaffected. However, their phone system was compromised, and an investigation with third-party forensic specialists is underway to determine the extent of any unauthorized activity and potential data impact. Additionally, Security Affairs notes that the Diaxin Team Cyber Criminal Group has claimed responsibility for the NTMWD attack, alleging the theft of sensitive information, including board meeting minutes and personnel details. In a separate incident, Slovenia's state-owned power generation company, HSE, was hit by a ransomware attack affecting its communication and information infrastructure, according to HelpNet Security. HSE's general director assured that control over power plants was maintained, safety was ensured, and electricity trading continued, albeit with some limitations on transactions as a precaution. These incidents highlight the evolving nature of cyber threats facing infrastructure sectors, where attackers are increasingly targeting business systems, but so far have not disrupted core operational functions. Arctic Wolf has identified a ransomware campaign by Cactus that is exploiting vulnerabilities in publicly exposed installations of the ClickSense Cloud Analytics and Business Intelligence platform. Click had previously issued patches for these vulnerabilities earlier in the year. According to Arctic Wolf's researchers, the campaign represents the first known instance where threat actors deploying Cactus ransomware have utilized ClickSense vulnerabilities for initial access into systems. This development highlights the importance of promptly applying security patches to protect against such exploits. Researchers at Hunter's Security have uncovered a design flaw in the domain-wide delegation feature of Google Workspace. This flaw, termed Delafriend, could potentially be exploited for privilege escalation and unauthorized access to Workspace APIs without requiring super-admin privileges. 
The vulnerability opens the door for a range of unauthorized activities, such as the theft of emails from Gmail, data exfiltration from Google Drive, and other illicit actions within Google Workspace APIs across all identities in the targeted domain. Upon discovering this flaw, hunters reported it to Google. They are now collaborating with Google's security team and products teams to develop effective mitigations. However, a Google spokesperson has stated to Dark Reading that the issue reported by hunters does not constitute an inherent security flaw in Google's products. Google emphasizes the importance of adhering to best practices, such as ensuring all accounts have the minimum necessary privileges as a fundamental strategy to counter these sort of threats. Inform Napalm reports that hacktivists of Ukraine's cyber resistance have succeeded in penetrating networks belonging to the Department of Information and Mass Communication at the Russian Defense Ministry. They've made off with internal files that show how the department monitors international media coverage of Russia's war, summarizes it for internal ministry consumption, and then selectively repurposes its take to support disinformation campaigns. The general tenor of the department's information operations is to represent the war as going well according to plan and depict Russian forces as capable and effective. Coming up after the break, my conversation with Eric Goldstein, Executive Assistant Director at CISA, describing their new Secure by Design Alerts program launching today. Tim Starks from The Washington Post shares insights on the latest legislation dealing with Section 702 surveillance. Stay with us. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. 
It is always my pleasure to welcome back to the show Eric Goldstein. He is Executive Assistant Director for Cybersecurity at CISA. Eric, welcome back. Thanks, David. Always good to be here. So, uh, exciting announcement today from you and your colleagues at CISA. You are launching a new program. This is called the Secure by Design Alerts Program. Uh, Bring us up to date here. Uh, What does this entail, and uh, why is CISA uh, launching this program? Thanks, Dave. You know, as, as you and many of your listeners will recall, you know, we at CISA, as well as partners across the community, have been focused on this concept of secure by design really for well over a year. And the idea here is that we can most effectively reduce the prevalence of damaging intrusions, not only by steps taken by individual enterprises, but by designing technology in a way that is more secure by design and default. And of course, we released a major uh, piece of guidance uh, earlier in the fall uh, that was joint sealed uh, by 14 other countries. Uh, But we also realized that that sometimes for some in the community, this concept of secure by design can seem a bit abstract, can seem a bit separated from the lived realities of organizations that are experiencing breaches like damaging ransomware attacks far too frequently. And so our new secure by design alert product series is really focusing on how secure Secure by design decisions actually lead to specific harms for organizations, school districts, small businesses, water utilities across the country. And so our first Secure by Design alert is focused on exposed uh, web interfaces, um, which we know uh, are often targeted uh, by adversaries. There have been recent examples um, where major adversary campaigns have targeted exposed web interfaces on edge devices. But we also know that it is a design decision about whether a web interface is exposed as a default. And that's a design decision where vendors can wipe out thousands of intrusions just by making a simple configuration change for how the product is deployed. And we're going to keep doing these secure by design alerts to really call attention to how design decisions relate to real world impacts and harms for organizations around the world. And how do you imagine folks out there who are responsible for the security in their organizations implementing this? You know, our goal is really to help organizations ask better questions of their vendors. And so just using the example of our first secure by design alert, you know, a lot of our guidance specific to this risk of exposed web interfaces have been to tell enterprises, for goodness sakes, remove your web interface uh, from the open internet. um, Or if you have to expose it, make sure that it's well controlled. And that has caused just a surge of activity and churn for organizations large and small around the world, we want organizations to do that work, but also to start asking, hey, why is this configuration setting insecure to begin with? And start asking their vendors to make better, safer decisions in how their products are designed and the default configurations they come with, and for vendors to take more accountability for the security outcomes of their customers to make design decisions that lead to more secure outcomes. What do you say to folks out there who are going to say, oh, I see, you know, CIS is uh, naming and shaming now? Yeah, you know, 
Our goal here isn't to name and shame in part because the problem is so pervasive. Uh, there is no vendor out there that is doing a perfect job of secure by design. Every vendor, and most acknowledge this, have room to grow and room to mature. And so our hope here is to help the community as a whole focus on an equilibrium or responsibility between enterprises and vendors such that every vendor can take steps to advance security across their customers. What do you imagine the cadence being of these sorts of alerts? You know, I, I wish I could say that the cadence will be infrequent, but we know that most of the intrusion campaigns and vulnerabilities that we see do have some secure by design issue at their root. And so, you know, these certainly won't be a weekly cadence, but we do expect to, to issue these periodically throughout the year as we see major vulnerabilities or intrusion campaigns that could have been to some degree addressed through different decisions made by different vendors. What's the best way for folks to keep up on these alerts to keep current? As always, uh, our website is cisa.gov. Uh, there is an easy way to sign up for email alerts uh, on our webpage. And of course, we also blast them out via all relevant uh, social media platforms. All right. Well, Eric Goldstein is Executive Assistant Director for Cybersecurity at CISA. Mr. Goldstein, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks to you, David. Happy holidays. And it is always my pleasure to welcome back to the show Tim Starks. He is the author of the Cybersecurity 202 at the Washington Post. Tim, welcome back. Thank you. And by the way, it is my pleasure, Dave. <laughs> well, it's likewise. I think we have a mutual admiration society for each <laughs> we other. Do. Uh, I've been reading uh, your coverage in the Post about uh, some movements here with uh, Section 702 and uh, Senator uh, Mark Warner, who I think it's fair to call a usual suspect when it comes to this sort of thing. Uh, bring us up to date here. What's the latest? Yeah, even if he wasn't a usual suspect, and I think that's accurate, his committee is the Intelligence Committee, and they're one of the two committees, uh, well, four if you count that, the, the House side, one of the two committees, Intelligence and Judiciary, that do deal with this Section 702 spying power. As we know, uh, expiring at the end of this year, the administration has been making a big press on Congress to to do something about this, especially because they say they've been using this these surveillance powers to to go after cyber attacks and and cyber attackers. So, uh, Senator Warner, you know, we've been, we've been waiting all year for someone to introduce legislation on on this Section 702 thing, knowing that it expires at the end of the year. And as of uh, yeah, as of uh, Tuesday, that happened with Senator Warner. We have seen a couple other proposals floating around out there. But Senator Warner's is, is, is I would say, the potentially the most important so far, partially because of the jurisdiction that his committee has, partially mm. because it has a co-sponsor on the Republican side who is his top committee member uh, on the Republican side. That's Marco Rubio. It also has the top Republican member on the Judiciary Committee. That's Lindsey Graham. So you're talking about some important players here. Um, you're talking about some coordination that's happened with the administration and with the House Intelligence Committee leadership. So, so it, it looks like perhaps the biggest so far. There had been another one um, from some very, very, very skeptical members about how Section 702 has been used on the privacy side. Um, Senator Wyden um, and, and, and some other senators like that, as well as House members like that, uh, including some very far-right members as well, in addition to the, to the very liberal types that had been much more focused on, on reauthorizing it with, with uh, warrant requirements for, for when, when they uh, seek information on U.S. communications. 
This one doesn't quite go that far, and naturally the civil liberty groups are not happy about it. But this does seem like an important marker of where some of the, the sides are, are coming down. And that way, at minimum, it's a, it's a very important proposal. Yeah, Senator Warner strikes me as, as being practical, and, and I think that's what's happening here. I mean, you're, you're reporting, I believe you, you refer to this as trying to thread that needle. Yeah, yeah, it's a, and it's a very difficult needle to thread. You know, this, this issue of the warrant requirement is the biggest deal with the side that is very, very, very upset about the way Section 702 has been used. You know, the, the administration keeps saying, we've made improvements. These abuses you've seen, we're going to get rid of them. Um, we've taken these steps to make sure it doesn't happen. We're taking these steps to make sure it happen, doesn't happen. But, but the civil liberties types do not trust that. They say, we've heard that from you before. We've heard that from you many past years. Um, and we keep hearing more, about more abuses. So if you're going to go in and, and get communications where you're querying American names or, or identifiers to get those communications, we need you to have a warrant for that. The Warner proposal does not do that entirely. It does say mm-hmm. you can't go in there and query for evidence of crime. That had been something of a concern because this was supposed to be a an anti-terrorism law. So people right. were like, wait, how, how much are we using this for? What are we using this for that? The issue, though, is that, that there aren't very many of those that have happened that we know about. According to the FBI, anyway, that is a very, very tiny, minute number. And that's where the civil liberty groups say, mm, yeah, okay, thanks for taking care of that one little thing. Um, but that's not what we're really concerned about. Hmm. So we're on a, a bit of a time crunch here with this expiring at the end of the year. What, what are the odds that this will go through? You know, I've, I've been skeptical for a long time. Uh, you know, once it started getting into the summertime and we weren't having any proposals put forward, I was like, that's kind of a bad sign. Like, you're not mm-hmm. even, you know, it takes Congress a while to have hearings. It takes Congress, may I mean, have had hearings, don't get me wrong, but it's, to have hearings on the legislation, to have markups. And we're, not, we're just now in the last few weeks, really, starting to get a sense of where people are going to come down on this. I am of the mind that uh, that the probably the likeliest thing that happens would be an attempt to put a short-term extension through. I don't know mm-hmm. if that's even likely. Um, and then there are questions about whether it's even necessary. Uh, at least on the civil liberty side, they say, "Look, there was an au- there was an authorization they got for this kind of warrantless surveillance um, back in April of last year. That'll hold through a year. So th- they might have a few more months, depending on who you ask. Um, I don't see anyone suddenly fixing." everything on this in time because one of the things we've left out here is that while the senate judiciary committee seems to be pretty much simpatico with with what's going on uh with this bill uh, and I, I say that a little speculatively just based on what i've heard about senator durbin who's the chairman of that committee we obviously know where senator graham's coming down but i think he's going to be amenable to this based on what i know congressman jim jordan who's the chairman judiciary judiciary chairman on the house side has very much been more talking about well, maybe the FBI shouldn't even be involved in 702. And he suggested that he likes that, that Wyden bill I mentioned uh, that has a warrant requirement for all of that communications, for the, the American side. So, so his role in this, what the House might be able to do in terms of exploring ways of attaching this to other legislation, that seems a little, little difficult. I, I just don't see a resolution to this by, by the end of the year that will be neat. I could see a potential short-term resolution, or I could see it dragging into next year. So might we see throughout the, the beginning of next year what things look like with Section 702 having been sunset? It really kind of depends. I mean, you know, one of the things I've talked to about people who, who have been involved in this, you know, actual program is that they need what they call certainty uh, if, if they're going to start planning ahead. 
so if we assume that what the groups say that, that the short-term extension is not needed, that the authorization that the court put into place last year will last for a few months, then maybe we won't see an immediate effect. We might start seeing um, some panic from the NSA and, and the agencies that work on this about what they're going to do once they start trying to prepare for the next batch of surveillance. That might be where we see some complications, but it might not actually lead to the surveillance completely going away until a few months later. Mm. All right. Well, as we like to say, time will tell. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Tim Starks <laughs> is the author of the Cybersecurity 202 at the Washington Post. Tim, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thank you, Dave. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And finally, according to a report from Trellix, cybersecurity teams are now more likely to receive support from their boards than face job termination following a cyber attack. This counters the long-standing fear among cybersecurity professionals of being scapegoated and fired post-incident. Key findings from Trellix's The Mind of the CISO report, which surveyed 500 chief information security officers, revealed that only 13% of companies reduced staff or fired personnel within the first year after a major cybersecurity incident. However, job cuts do occur over time, with 23% and 31% reporting staff reductions one to three years and over three years post-incident, respectively. In fact, companies are more inclined to bolster their cybersecurity efforts immediately after an attack. 46% of CISOs reported increased budgets for new tools and technology. 38% noted the creation of new jobs. And 44% added contracted services to enhance cybersecurity measures. Still, the report highlights that job losses still transpire as companies gain a clearer understanding of the breach's circumstances. This ongoing risk, compounded by impending Securities and Exchange Commission regulations, places CISOs under heightened liability concerns. The evolving landscape illustrates a shift towards proactive support in the immediate aftermath of cyber incidents, yet underscores the lingering challenges faced by cybersecurity leaders in the longer term. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like The Cyberwire 
are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Liz Urban and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is Trey Hester with original music by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producer is Brandon Karp. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.